0: Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review. I am Lou Rosenfeld. I am really happy to have my friend Nathan Chedroff here. Hi, Nathan. Hi. You know, it's sort of hard to introduce you. Uh, What have you not done in the field of design? The founder of Vivid, you've written more books than I can keep track of, including three books with the Rosenfeld Media Blind Spot, to make it so, and design is a problem. Uh, you've created uh, a pretty uh, uh, innovative uh, design MBA program at California College of the Arts. And, but we're going to talk t- to Nathan about new things that he's doing, because he's always doing something new. He is working on a company, uh, a startup. And I think this is kind of like your, your first startup since Vivid, right?
1: Oh no, I've had others just not successful on. It. Oh, okay.
0: Well, we won't we won't ding you on the ones that we don't know about. But right. C vault um, is really interesting because it it's kind of living at the crossroads of a a couple things that um, a lot of us are interested in or are certainly curious about. Blockchain and conversational user interfaces. And I mean like those individually make many of our heads explode. And here's Nathan figuring out some interesting way with some partners to combine them. And uh, it's very promising. So I thought what we could do, Nathan, is you could kind of educate us a little bit about CUIs, conversational user interfaces, and blockchain, uh, just introduce them uh, as best you can, but you also now have all these great things to, um, from, from uh, C-Vault to, uh, help us, uh, to serve as examples to help, help us understand both concepts. What do we need to know first? What, what's the foundation? Would it be uh, blockchain itself?
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's sort of two categories of things right now that uh, are coming together, at least for me, and what, what uh, I and my uh, teams are doing, and that is uh, blockchain is this new technology, and I'm, you know, a convert. I'm convinced that this is a technology that's going to change everything again just like the internet and the web did and and I say this because I was there when you know the 90s happened and we saw interactive media permutate into many different forms and are you saying it's it's 1997 again again it is 1997 again again absolutely okay. so blockchain is one of these technologies that very clearly to me is going to change everything the same way that web and HTML and the internet has changed things. And then uh, parallel to that, bots or conversational user interfaces are another technology and, and together with AI are another technology that are also going to change everything. So putting the two together has been a really interesting project that my latest startup is uh, at the intersection of. So, I'm
0: really disappointed because I mean you've combined all the things except my favorite thing these days, ops. So um, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm very disappointed in you. But all right,
1: we'll. Well, well, we'll... the other thing that's going to change everything, by the way, is regenerative medicine and adult stem cells. But maybe we should make that a different podcast.
0: Okay let's let's get <laughs> let's get to that later.
1: So blockchain, I'm sure people have heard it all. You know, around uh, it's a it's actually. There's a lot of hype around it. It's very much the wild west, but blockchain technology is actually fairly easy to understand. Um, think of it as a, a, just a giant global ledger that's that's managed peer to peer. So it's a giant list of transactions. That's all it is. It's accounting, but it's a set of uh, software called smart contracts that independently manage this list in a way that's um, verifiable and trustable. So it's a giant transaction uh, or a ledger of transactions that once they're recorded, they're permanent. So for instance, digital currencies are built on a blockchain. They're at the heart of, block- of uh, currencies. Uh, but you could use a blockchain for all sorts of things. Um, and the way that let's say a Bitcoin works is that there's a ledger, there's a blockchain of all the transactions every, anyone's ever done with Bitcoin. They're all sitting in like, it's one giant bank account open to everyone to see. You don't know who's behind the account number necessarily, but you can see all the trades that that account number has done. And you can go back to, you know, Bitcoin, I think, started around, what, 2014, maybe?
0: That sounds or, about right
1: maybe a little bit earlier, I think it's seven years old, so no, 2011, 12 probably. Uh, you can go back on a on a search and see every transaction everyone anyone's ever done on a blockchain, or on Bitcoin. And the same goes for all digital currencies. So it's a technology that allows that to happen without someone centrally managing it. Um, and in fact, these smart contracts, are part of the technology that's gonna change things because you can encode logic into these smart contracts and then essentially you set them off on their own to go run automatically. And in fact, the reason why something like an Ethereum or a a Bitcoin are trustable is that this code is running on its own. No one is in charge of it, uh, technically. No one is um, managing the transactions. And therefore, no one conceivably or theoretically can go screw around with them and therefore change the transaction history or, or make transactions that are false. So essentially, this chain of um, transactions is managed in blocks. And once a block fills, which is an arbitrary number of transactions, it's solidified and a new block is opened and more transactions keep stacking up. And that's why it's called blockchain what's the important part about that solidification it's permanent it's open in the sense that everyone can see it it's peer-to-peer so it doesn't live just in one place where it can be wiped out it lives everywhere that you know there are nodes that are contributing to this and it's verifiable so i could say oh yeah i gave lou two bitcoins and if if other nodes, in, in other words, if other people on the network didn't see me give you two Bitcoins, then it effectively didn't happen. So you can't just come in and say, oh, yeah, uh, I gave Christina Wadkey a bunch of Bitcoins and, and she you know, she owes me this. If other nodes didn't see it, if you didn't see it, then nobody trusts that transaction. And so this is how they build a trustable, verifiable, alternate Financing or currency mechanisms.
0: So there's a, a lot of transparency in order to engender trust in the system, and obviously you can't have a system without trust. Is that transparency something I need to worry about uh, as a uh, as a someone who uses or makes transactions in blockchain?
1: Well, yeah. In fact, transparency is the key word. You know, we can talk about the technology of blockchain, but the reality here for you know, probably your listeners and you and I is that this is ushering in a new world of radical transparency. And that's what's going to change everything. That's why blockchain is going to change everything. When radical transparency hits company after company or organization after organization and industry after industry, it's going to change things in the same way that online commerce has changed everything about retail wholesale and commerce in general. And so transparency is the key here.
0: You know, is it the kind of transparency that I have to worry about in terms of
1: my privacy as a purchaser? Right. Right. So yes and no. (laughs) Um, Again, these are all handled by account numbers. So it's sort of like a Swiss bank account in the sense that you can see the trades that have been made in and out of that account, but you don't know who's behind that account. Now, when you open up an account, especially as a US citizen, if you went to uh, one of the exchanges, you would have to upload all sorts of personal information, including your you know, passport photo, and a utility bill to, to establish residency, and a whole bunch of other information, so the exchange knows who you are. And then, of course, if some law enforcement agency or some hacker hacked those lists, then yeah, that stuff could come out. Um, The IRS is if you're a a US citizen, the IRS is going to be able to get to this information. So it won't be private from the institutions that normally, you know, connect and see, you know, your your taxes and your income and your Mm -hmm. transactions. But it's private in the sense of you can anyone can see any transaction on the network, but they just don't know who's behind those accounts
0: i 'm so interested in in this topic based on my experience in the uh, search analytics space uh, a million years ago. I wrote a book on that, and I remember learning about um, uh, an interesting thing that happened uh, with a bunch of uh, AOL researchers uh, they They had a huge trove of search data what what different uh, queries were and uh, each query was associated with an account number. They made this data available. Quite generously for people to use for research purposes, and they right. thought the account numbers were sufficient to anonymize the individual users. However, uh, very quickly the data was thrown into a, a searchable database, and the um, you could very quickly see you know who uh, each account each individual account holder's queries what they were. Yep. Basically, then you could say, well, this. Account holder search for these things collectively we may we may be able to identify them and uh, uh, a New York Times reporter wrote a story on this actually was able to identify uh, a number of people I believe based on what they'd searched for and um yeah, this was especially uh disconcerting because some of the queries were for pornography, and uh, they could tell who was searching for what type of porn, even though there were no names involved, just account numbers. That's why I'm thinking about the issue of privacy here.
1: Right. Well, so this is definitely a concern in the community. And it, it there are possibilities if you get really smart, you know, there's no reason why Amazon and Google can't figure out, well, first of all, they have your personal info, but even without it, they have enough search data to triangulate that they can reconstruct who you are pretty easily. I mean, if this New York Times reporter could do it. Certainly the big companies can do it.
0: Well, that's a good point. So I, I guess the, the thing maybe we should take away is uh, 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 my silly outnoted notion of privacy from, let's say, before 1997. Uh, some of us still hold on to that is, is kind of, well, it's silly. We, we don't really have the same expectations or shouldn't. And uh, maybe the, the benefit here is that at least it's not in the hands of a few big organizations that we already may fear
1: Uh, It's in the hands of everyone, uh, and hopefully that's no worse. Well, and the Europeans, by the way, are way ahead of this. Their uh, privacy and, and private user data regulations are quite strong, way, way better than what's here in the U.S. So let's hope that others use that as a model. Agreed.
0: So now we've got
1: blockchain
0: to take uh, advantage of uh, and hopefully not to take advantage of us. Um, And you're going to combine that with uh, conversational user interfaces uh, by way of bots.
1: Right. Well, let me give you a couple of examples really quickly about why blockchain technology is going to, you know, create this radical transparency. Okay. There's a company right here in San Francisco that's putting sensors in agriculture fields in California and Massachusetts measuring things like water and sunshine and nutrients and fertilizer and pesticides and all that kind of stuff and they're basically creating blockchain for agriculture so the end result of all the things that happen between the growers the the transportation the wholesalers the retailers etc is that when you walk into a safeway for instance or a, Uh, Whole Foods, you know, when it says organic strawberries, there's actually a ledger, there's a blockchain of everything that happened to those strawberries from start to the moment you you saw them in Whole Foods that proves that they were organic or not. So that's the kind of radical transparency that, that is going to start happening to industries, is that someone who is concerned about this stuff will be able to search the blockchain and determine whether, you know, what you're saying is true or not. Another example is the diamond world. If you wanted to if you're anywhere in the west western world and you wanted to buy a diamond, you will only be shown conflict-free diamonds. But if you look at all the diamonds available to people in the west to buy and then compare it to the annual output of diamonds coming out of Canada, which is essentially the only source of conflict-free diamonds, they are way off. Those two mm. numbers are not aligned. And that's because there's a tremendous amount of fraud in the diamond world about, you know, labels like conflict-free. Right. So when there's a blockchain for the diamond world, you'll be able to determine where that diamond came from. And is it in, in fact block. Uh, conflict-free or not. And that's going to change everything about that industry. This is going to happen everywhere.
0: It's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, that that's really exciting. And uh, uh, I, I imagine that's just two of uh, an almost infinite number right. of possibilities where this can help. How, how do you actually associate physical things like diamonds or, um, or uh, strawberries with... Uh, is the right diamond or the right bushel of strawberries?
1: Well, diamonds are actually, uh, they have a a serial number encoded onto them. And obviously there are moments when things enter the blockchain or when data enters the blockchain where fraud can happen. So Mm -hmm. it's not like this is foolproof, but it'll be much easier to manage. Um, You you know, we're we're talking about things like um, inanimate objects may manage themselves With these smart contracts, so Mm -hmm. a famous painting by uh, Monet may have its own blockchains with smart contracts around it that manage ownership on that. Or, or or a better example might be a piece of property, a home, may manage the interactions it has with developers, city ordinances, sales, taxes, you know, repairs, etc. Um, a set of smart contracts may essentially make the house a little bit smart so you can query the house for its history. You don't have to go to an agency or a company, it, the, obviously, in the future. That's the power of these smart contracts, but obviously they have to be written correctly.
0: Wow. That's not, yeah, I mean, that sounds well, pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about your amazingness. Yeah. What are you well, guys going to be doing? Well, So let's talk a little bit about uh, conversational user interfaces. It's our contention that the CUI, the conversational user interface, is going to be a new paradigm shift for for interfaces. This is what designers need to be on top of. Just like we saw uh, the paradigm shift from command line interfaces to GUIs, graphic user interfaces, and all of the requisite technologies, tools, opportunities, new kinds of users, new numbers of users, etc. That's all going to happen again, and I think on a bigger scale. So we're going to be talking to our things and our services more than we are um, looking at them necessarily or uh, manipulating them with our hands. Now, obviously, it's not going to cover Everything we do with digital services. There's still a place where we use command lines today, although not many. Um, We're going to start talking to our cars, our homes. We're already doing it with Alexa and Siri and Cortana and others. We're going to be talking to companies for customer service. That's actually well on its way already. Mm -hmm. And then everyone will probably have at least one bot or conversational user interface. They use that represents them, that has a certain amount of agency. All of this has been talked about, obviously, for 20 years, but it's finally coming to fruition because of the technologies we now call AI, which is essentially machine learning and pattern recognition and natural language processing, et cetera.
0: Well, hold on a second. So you're saying that in in the future, I will have a bot that can wait on hold with my vendor's bot instead of me waiting on hold and waiting for them to get back to me.
1: Oh yeah, and in fact, it may, depending on uh, your settings, it may have enough agency that it's not waiting on hold. It's just talking to that bot and 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 negotiating on your behalf. It doesn't. It's not like it'll come back and uh, notify you when you're you know, when the hold is off. I mean, no, they'll actually handle it for me, which I like. I assume
0: topic. that um, uh, you know they can't be bribed by the the uh, company's bot. Uh,
1: Right, exactly. Well, so this is why we have to be able to trust these bots, right? Mm -hmm. We need a mechanism for trust. But if you think about it, you have a lot of websites that represent you, right? You have several for your company. You have several for your person. You know, you might have Facebook and LinkedIn. You might have Twitter. You might have a bunch of other websites that essentially are representing you. And those will start to become more and more bots, um, and they will have more agency, and they will talk to others on your behalf, and they will help you talk to others.
0: So interesting. I, I just got back from the Interaction Conference in Lyon, and I'd say that the word of the conference was agency. Although I think we're talking more about agency uh, that designers could have instead of making excuses for why things are involved in turn of sure but um, you know maybe we'll learn something about personal agency from all the agency thinking we're doing on behalf of the boss for designing
1: absolutely and we all we you know it's clear that th- these ai technologies are not just taking off in terms of excitement and investment in startups but they're affecting our lives in really s- profound ways and significant ways for both good and for bad mm-hmm. so we as designers now have a new set of responsibilities and capabilities um, that become much more socially engaged. So everything that Nass and Reeves at Stanford published in their book, The Media Equation, is finally coming true and will apply to pretty much every interface when you know these things become more and more social actors in our lives.
0: How's that going to work for your for, for what you're yeah. doing? This?
1: Well, so we're putting the two together and we're building essentially bot stores on the blockchain, right? So we're building a network called the seed network and a token that runs on it called seed, S-E-E-D, and we're building an entire economy around bot interactions. And we're doing this for a couple reasons. One is, as you said, we need to be able to trust these bots. So we need a way to authenticate them so that I can trust the bot I'm talking to. So my bots can trust other bots so that people can trust the Virgin and BMW and Walmart bots, et cetera. So the first part of that is to authenticate these things in a reasonable way, and it turns out the blockchain's a pretty good way of doing that. But the bigger problem is, if you go back to 97 again and, and think about the HTML and, and web world, if you had to go to 10 companies to get a website back then, you know, let's say Cisco, IBM, uh, Microsoft, bull, a couple uh, international companies, et cetera, if you had to line up to a very small number of companies to have a website, the web would never have taken off or it would have taken an extra 10 or 20 years in order to reach where we are. And that's the situation with bots right now. To use these sophisticated technologies and do anything other than a rudimentary chat bot, you need to go, you need a lot of hardware and you need a lot of data and go to a company like Amazon and and use Alexa services or Microsoft and use their bot services or Google and Facebook and Baidu and Mm -hmm. Alibaba, et cetera. That's not a healthy situation and it doesn't help independent developers. So the key part of this is that we need to essentially democratize those technologies and services and it turns out the blockchain's a good way to do that too. So we're building a mechanism that every time a bot runs, every piece of that bot that was contributed by a developer of some kind, maybe it's a personality template or an avatar or even a, a voice intonation, um, every piece of the bot that that contributed to the the final bot, everyone gets remun- remunerated or compensated based on their licensing fee. Mm-hmm. There's, there's So that we create a healthy economy for developers of of bots and bot components and and bot services so that everyone gets to, you know, participate in compensation, which is going to be really important as machine learning starts deleting lots of the jobs that exist out there in the world.
0: Wow. So you've just opened it up uh, in in ways that, uh, you know, I mean, look, look, from a let's say, from a publishing perspective.
1: Yes. Sometimes
0: I try to talk to someone who could write a book on this topic. They're almost universally employed by one of those few companies. Yeah. And they're not allowed to talk about it. And that bothers me, not yep. just as a publisher, but as a, a designer. And I, it, it's frustrating that this, this is this, like, important, clearly important area that's kind of been closed down. So I'm really excited that you're opening it up. And, uh, and also look, I mean, you know, there's the, the broader issue of, you know, we are, you know, a lot of us will be losing jobs and, uh, you know, that, that doesn't mean we don't have anything to offer in this new economy and your right. you're way for that to, for, for people to, to continue to be compensated for their, for the work.
1: Yeah, it's true. And, and, and think of it this way. This is the analogy I use, you know, in the music world, most people, most musicians, even for you know, studio produced music and music that we hear in popular radio and podcasts and and, and whatnot, um, they get scale, right? They, you know, I was the audio engineer or I did the cover art or I wrote the lyrics or whatever. And I just got paid a flat fee because if I got paid at all Mm -hmm. and I don't get to participate in the popularity and the ultimate compensation for the thing that I contributed to, unless I'm maybe the, you know, the singer or the band or someone, you know, famous recognizable right yeah. exactly. well so this what we're building for the bot world is essentially what should have been built for the music world or elsewhere in publishing which is everyone should be compensated for their piece and it's a teeny tiny piece every time the song is played or every time the book is read or every time the you know podcast is listened to it it's the vision about um, micropayments and publishing that started all the way back in, uh, well, Ted Nelson with Xanadu, but maybe even uh, Vannevar Bush before him. Mm-hmm. And so we're building it for the bot world. Amazing.
0: I- I'm, I'm absorbing this, but I know yeah. you've been thinking about it for a while, and I, I know that you've been uh, getting the idea out there in startup form. So where are you now with C Capital? I'm sorry. With SeaFall, are
1: you are you? Default, it? yeah. Well, so we're an in, independent nonprofit based in Singapore because it's a place that uh, doesn't get squeamish around digital currencies, and we've established it as a nonprofit specifically, because or as close to a nonprofit as we can get in Singapore. But we established it that way specifically so that it's essentially not ownable. Uh, Facebook or Google can't come in and make an offer to the shareholders. And buy the whole thing and own it, which would instantly make it no longer an independent platform right we 're committed and, and we see that the the it 's critical that this becomes an independent bot deployment and development platform the moment it 's independent it 's not it 's not fulfilling its duties so we're we 've done that, and we have uh, We have built our token economics and our crypto economics and, you know, people can go to seedtoken.io and download our white papers and whatnot. But we're just now, um, I think, uh, hitting launch speed with investment and signing up bot development communities. And um, really, everything's just starting to come together this week. So it's kind of uh, fortuitous that we're doing this podcast right now.
0: Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm I'm glad our timing is good. Uh, more importantly, I'm glad your timing is so good. <laughs> and um, uh, um, I'm not surprised because uh, y- you just tend to break new ground every couple of years. Uh, Nathan Shedroff, thanks for joining us again. Could you give us the URL that uh, we can learn more about Seed uh, Vault from?
1: Yeah, it's it's Seed Token. S E E D is in David. T-O-K-E-N token dot Io.
0: And if you want to know more about Nathan, you should go to Nathan.com. He's a proud member of the League of Nathans. Great to have you on. Thank you so much,
1: Lou. Take care.